Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. We're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCabot. And today we're going to be talking about Prince Edward Island, Anne of Green Gables, and Lucy Maud Montgomery. So in order to do that, we brought in our No History expert on PEI, Leanne Goody. Welcome, Leanne. Thanks, guys. I'm so excited to be here today and talk about Lucy Maud Montgomery and everything Anne. And also a fun fact is that Leanne helps with our social media. Thank you so much for doing all of the social media stuff, Leanne. It's really great. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're killing it. You make us all look great. <laughs> That's my job. Yeah, I assume that you have a lot of background with Anne of Green Gables. Surprisingly, um, I guess so. Just from living on the island, I would say that my first experience with Anne was probably a rejection of Anne, if I can say that. Just from growing up, I was too young to read at the time, but you're kind of overwhelmed with all of the Anne activity and Anne products that are for sale, kind of just suffocating in my mind at the time a lot of other island experiences but then when I was older and able to read the books I quickly became very enthusiastic about this atmosphere and then growing up we had a lot of people visiting us on Prince Edward Island visiting from far away and we would then attend all the different Anne events and tourism sites and it kind of made my appreciation grow even more from there. I, uh, I think I was raised on the Megan Follows 1985 film. Yeah. I have a lot of memories of watching that as a child. And then, <laughs> and then I read the books later on. I also had to read the first book, Anne of Green Gables, in my children's lit course in my undergrad. But I grew up in Flamborough, as did someone else on this podcast. Beautiful, beautiful Flamborough. <laughs> and Flamborough is close to Westfield Heritage Village, which is where they filmed a lot of parts. It had the train station that they used for the set and a lot of the houses. It was also heavily used for Road to Avonlea. Um, so I visited that all the time. And then uh, without knowing it originally, I, I knew before my wedding reception occurred. After I booked the venue, I found out the venue that we had booked in Toronto was actually Maplehurst Lodge from Anne of Avonlea. So uh, pretty... And it's pretty intertwined with my life. That's a pretty so. good deal. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Road to Evanly was also like family-friendly television. So when I was a child, it was always okay for me to be watching it. What about you guys? I have known about Anne of Green Gables the way I think kind of every Canadian knows about Anne of Green Gables. That it was a book series and there is a place in PEI and that's about it. The imagery of the girl with the red hair and the straw hat, that kind of thing. And when I was a kid, I did watch a cartoon. I have this very vague memory of watching an Anne of Green Gables cartoon. That can't be canonical, though. <laughs> so I don't know if that counts. Are you thinking of Peppy Longstockings? <laughs> no, honestly, I had a hard time with my memory trying to like separate the two. And I was like, no, they are just both girls with red hair. They're or different. And orphans. <laughs> and orphans. My, my experience with Anne is limited to the 10 minutes I spent watching the intro to the 1934 movie, where everyone speaks in almost that transatlantic accent, like, oh, I'm so happy to be here. Like, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's, it's something. And I was like, oh, Anne, you've got so much gumption and spunk. You're just ready to, ready to take over, take over the world. 
of PEI. They're really ham-fisted with it in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I don't know what imagination is. And she's like, well, imagination is when you think of something. (laughs) I would recommend it. (laughs) The first 10 minutes. Yeah, direct quote. (laughs) Well, while we're recommending things, uh, something that every listener should absolutely check out is Kate Beaton's comic where she did a mashup of Anne of Cleves and Mm -hmm. Anne of Green Gables called Anne of Cleves Gables. And it is the most perfect historical literary mashup I've ever read in my life. And uh, it makes me cry of laughter every single time I read it. With that, <laughs> let's get into it. Carrots, raspberry cordial, puffed sleeves, and a house with green gables. And with an E continues to be beloved around the world and has made Canada's smallest province, Prince Edward Island, a popular destination for tourists, both national and international. Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables was published in 1908, and continues to be a major presence in our culture. Only last year, in 2017, Netflix and CBC released the latest television adaptation. 110 years later, Montgomery's Anne Shirley has had quite a history. She's been adapted in films, television, radio dramas, anime series, stage performances, and even web series. But what of the author herself? What can we learn by looking at her life and her role in Canada's history? What of Prince Edward Island and the incredible influence these novels have had on the historic and literary tourism for this province? Anne's influence has only increased over the years, and today we want to notice the history of this important Canadian figure. We could do a, a bit of a summary on Anne of Green Gables before we get into the author, Lucy Maud Montgomery, since right. Anne is who we're here to talk about. I can do the first 10 minutes. So she's from Nova Scotia in an orphanage. <laughs> the, this older couple needs help on their farm, right? So they go and they contact the orphanage. Now they're like, we want a guy because we need farm labor done because this is a working farm that we need to make a living from. They send Anne by some mix-up. They keep Anne and she never does any farm labor. So you're not wrong. I would add to that that Anne is fortuitously placed in this family's lives and in this town's lives, which is a very beautiful, very pastoral type of small village with beautiful descriptions that I think were really probably mystical at the time Mm -hmm. when it came out and captured the world by just its sheer otherness um, and foreignness to where most people lived and what their experiences were. So Anne is dropped into this place and has just this amazing imagination and positivity and this brand new way of looking at the world around her and experiencing the world that transforms the lives of every person that she encounters. And often it takes a long time and a lot of wearing down. (laughs) In Myrtle's case, Matthew falls for her right away. He's just totally loves this little girl. He never had a kid of his own. Certainly throughout the books, you just see the amazing influence that she has on everyone's lives that she's placed into. She's kind of the Leslie Nope of 1908's Prince Mm. Edward Island. Yes. So that's the book in general. A lot of kids have, have grown up reading it, it's, or at least have seen some depiction of it. I would agree, yeah. Either the movie, uh, reading the book, I think, and then Road to Avonlea, which doesn't necessarily involve the book specifically, but a lot of the characters overlap. I would say there are some token highlights from the first book that everyone kind of thinks of immediately when they think of the series. So the classic Anne Shirley getting called Carrots by Gilbert Blythe on her first day of school, to which she responds incredibly and breaks her chalkboard over Gilbert's head very dramatically. It's it's amazing. It is. Um, it's like WWE. Yeah. <laughs> it's a folding chair in it. <laughs> yeah. It's just amazing. If you watch anything from that movie, it would be to YouTube that scene, I would say. Another personal favorite part of this, just of the books in general for me, is 
Anne's amazing friendship with Diana Barry, who is her bosom friend. And I think that's one of my favorite scenes from the movie we keep referencing is when they're forbidden to see each other, but they sneakily meet up afterwards. And uh, they pretty much profess their love for one another, but it's a really beautiful example of female friendship that always stuck out to me when I was younger. There's so many other scenes. There's so many. I mean, the mouse uh, in the pantry... Yes. Um, dyeing her hair green accidentally. Yes. The Lady of Shalott. Janet accidentally becoming inebriated off of Raspberry Cordial. Yeah. yeah. So many great scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys just want to go and watch it all right now. Typical, typical kids' experiences, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit about the book. But we also want to talk about her creator, Lucy Maud Montgomery, who wrote this amazing book that has become a lasting piece in Canada's memory. Liam, would you be able to give us a brief summary Ellen Montgomery's life? Sure. So she was born on November 30th in 1874 in New London, Prince Edward Island. She was then raised in Cavendish, Prince Edward Island, by actually her maternal grandparents. Her mother died, unfortunately, from tuberculosis when Lucy Maud was 21 months old. Her father then moved to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and remarried. So Lucy Maud Montgomery continued to uh, grow up in Cavendish. She spent a lot of time with different family members, and she became fascinated with her cousin's house, which is what inspired the Anna Green Gables house in the book. A lot of people, I think, that think about Prince Edward Island or think about that house, assume it was where Lucy Maud Montgomery herself lived, not interestingly enough. In July 1906, Montgomery became secretly engaged to Reverend Ewan MacDonald. They were then married in 1911 and moved to Leakesdale, Ontario, where Ewan was the minister of the Presbyterian Church. Montgomery actually did not live on Prince Edward Island again after her marriage. She would only visit and spend vacations on the island that she loved so much. Maybe that explains a bit why it has such a magical description in the way that she mm-hmm. is writing when she's describing the location, because she was still engaged at the time and hadn't quite married by the time it was published. But even if she thought that she might be leaving that place, the way that she describes it is so memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, with so much nostalgia, it feels like attached to it, right? But it's really beautiful, picturesque. Well, well she's like romanticizing it, right? Absolutely. It's all part of those aesthetic codes. I think so. I think she was just very taken with the landscape, and I think that's reflected in Anne and also in a lot of the other female characters that she created over the years. And I think that's what is so endearing. It's interesting to think about Lucy Montgomery and Anne and the other female characters she created because there is this very beautiful use of language to describe their surroundings. I think it's reflective of Lucy Maud's voice herself. Lucy Maud Montgomery began writing at nine, and it was mostly poetry and journals. And then she was published in local newspapers and magazines all around North America. She's once quoted in her journals, which have been heavily researched, that I cannot remember a time when I was not writing or when I did not mean to be an author. To write has always been my central purpose around which every effort and hope and ambition of my life has grouped itself. You can see from that that she was very ambitious Mm -hmm. and very hardworking. Yeah, and she, to that end, she actually settled on a pseudonym because it hid her gender, because she wanted to have that ambition be able to take flight and take form. And at the time, women writers didn't get as much credit, and they certainly weren't as recognized. 
So she had used Maud Cavendish and Joyce Cavendish before this to less success and chose L.M. Montgomery because it really helped mask her gender a lot better. Yeah, it's really an era where women can basically be travel writers and that's like where you can get a lot of recognition. But if she wants to be a fiction writer, it makes sense that she would try to go for a pseudonym. Yeah, and I mean, that continued well past even the 1950s, right? I mean, this continues in all kinds of different genres with people like Ursula Le Guin taking pseudonyms. It's it's very common, but so for her to be able to write in 1908 and be recognized and be able to use a pseudonym is still really impressive and impressive that she had such strong feelings and ambitions towards wanting to be a writer and, and followed them through and was willing to do what it took to, to be able to be recognized. Her first published poem, um, which was titled On Cape La Force, was printed in the Charlottetown Patriot. And that was when she was 16. So she started writing when she was nine. She's published when she's 16. And then when she's 20, she finishes her two years teacher's training course in one year at the Prince of Wales College in Charlottetown. So she's busy. Yeah. She's doing stuff. She's dedicated. (laughs) All right, yeah. Montgomery's ancestors were wealthy Scottish immigrants who came to Prince Edward Island in the 1770s, which was then called the Island of St. John. Her maternal great-grandfather was William Simpson McNeil, member of the provincial legislature from 1814 to 1838, and her paternal grandfather was Donald Montgomery, who served in the provincial legislature from 1832 to 1874. The latter was also appointed a federal senator by Sir John A. Macdonald from 1873 to 1893. So she is connected. So within that, she had a lot of roles. I mean, we've already talked about how she was married uh, in 1911 and she moved off to be with Ewan, who was a minister. So she was able to be a mother. She was a housekeeper. She was a minister's wife, which at that time and also still today comes with a lot of responsibilities. It's not just something that your husband does, but you're expected as the wife to be performing a lot of duties within the church and a lot of them fall to you. You're not getting a salary, so yay! (laughs) And certainly then she was also an author, which is quite impressive to consider that she was acting in all these different spheres and holding all these roles and managing to be so successful at them. You're really wearing a lot of hats. Yeah. Maybe a straw one. Yeah. <laughs> With yeah, maybe, maybe braided hair to keep it out of her face. Yeah. She was also, obviously, as a result of this, was adept at doing many things at once. She was a great multitasker. She was known to have been very orderly in her housework, to crochet or knit during pastoral visits, which, again, very impressive considering what she was also having to do. Uh, she would work out plots and dialogues of her novels as she rode into town. And parishioners remember her muttering behind closed doors as she worked out plots and characters. Yeah, certainly making use of every minute of the day. Definitely. What I think is so interesting just from doing the research, because as I said before, I wasn't very familiar with the story or Lucy Maud Montgomery before this, was because her journals are like so thoroughly studied and she was such an avid writer of not only fiction but also her own life it's like this very unique window into this incredibly interesting woman and you get to kind of experience that time period through her eyes and it's I don't know it's very interesting it's easy to see why she's an individual that is studied so much still I I agree so much and honestly out of everything I've read by Lucy Montgomery which hasn't been everything I should I should say my favorite things I've read are her journals they're in five volumes I believe and they're just they're so captivating even when she was very young her first volume she's writing so well and she's yeah nine or ten it's it's pretty amazing I should also say though that I was reading while doing the research for this how she would write oftentimes her thoughts or experiences on scraps of paper and then later go to her journal sometimes months later and rewrite it all almost 
I would say, and I think I've, I've read before, in a way of acknowledging that this journal probably would be read by the public mm-hmm. later and thinking about the way she wanted to express herself or be remembered. So it's interesting to think about it that way. She was aware of the celebrity status that she had, even while writing in her personal journals. Right. So she's very cognizant of like her own image and then how we would even be talking about her today, mm-hmm. I guess. Which like, is such a burden to have to carry, right? Like, mm-hmm. That even in your own journals, where it's supposed to be the place where you can be candid and honest and work through the struggles of the day and the struggles of your life, even there, she felt she needed to almost censor herself. Not necessarily mm-hmm. censor, but certainly uh, present herself and be aware of how she was writing and portraying the issues that she was dealing with or what she was choosing to write about. That would take quite a toll, I would think. I would think as well. And I think what's interesting to think about as an extension of this discussion is how Lucy Mount Montgomery also kept a scrapbook kept with filled with clippings that were often taken from newspapers or publications that were reviews of different movies that were coming out at the time or reviews of her written work. And they were filled with, I think, just like a scrapbook. And these have been started to be studied as well by scholars and analyzing how it's obviously a documented proof that Lucy Mo Montgomery was interested in how the public was receiving her and also how they were portraying her. That is fascinating because it's something that I don't think a lot of celebrities were necessarily doing before the advent of social media mm-hmm. and the ability to be in touch with people so much and see how people react like with Twitter and Instagram and having people be able to reach back at you mm-hmm. and come back with how they're experiencing you and how they're viewing you and seeing those lenses uh, to see her already being kind of cognizant of that and, and caring about it and trying to manage it in a way or, or keep track of it. It's really a very new way of viewing that. I think so as well. I don't know, again, how that compares to other literary figures at the time, but I think an important part of that history is that most of the celebrity status that people were receiving in that age around, you know, the early 1900s were Americans. So Lucy Mel Montgomery would have been, I would argue, one of the few Canadian literary celebrities. Um, the fact that she was a woman is an extra layer to that as well. So yeah, there's so much to unpack. I was going to say, it's it's also interesting that we have her process for journal and diary writing. Like there could be other literary figures who might have been thinking in the same way, like Mark Twain or whoever, just like trying to think of contemporaries. But the fact that we know that she was writing down these bits of paper before she put things in, or we we have her whole process. Mm -hmm. Like we have those very minute details of her life that you might not have about any historical figure. Right. But we do get also like, I guess, unique viewpoints from those journals too. Like during the First World War, uh, Montgomery worked with the Red Cross sewing and knitting. And she wrote in her journal, quote, Oh, is it not hideous, unbelievable, unthinkable? Oh, surely, surely, Germany cannot win. It is no joke but a simple fact that I have not had one decent dinner since the war began. Our dinner hour is one. The mail comes at 1230. If the news is good, it excites me. If it is bad, it upsets me, and I can eat little while I decide to exert all my willpower and refuse to look at the papers until after dinner. The suspense is worse for all, and I can eat absolutely nothing. When I tell this to our comfortable, stolen country people, who, from a combination of ignorance and lack of imagination, do not seem to realize the war at all, they laugh as if they thought I was trying to be funny. Those who perceive that I am in earnest think I am crazy. This shows us how she sees herself as separate from the people of rural Ontario. She might not feel connected to them. She doesn't know how to communicate with them. It's also strikingly similar to the way that Anne Shirley behaves 
in Anne of Green Gables, right? And the talk about viewing herself and the way that the the people around her, the the country people, behave and act and how they process things and emote. Having Lucy Maud over emoting and being so affected by the things that are happening, by the war, and seeing other people around her not being as affected. That's very much the case of how Anne Shirley behaves um, when she's in Avonlea. In Avonlea, Anne Shirley over feels everything. And the country people are just like, stop feeling things. You feel too much. You need to be sensible and just get things done. The farm labor needs to be done. And she just wants to lie in a, in a field and think about how beautiful flowers are and things like that. So it's, it is a very similar way of looking at the world. It, it almost reads like it could be about Anne experiencing the First World War. But do you think she's just out of touch? Like, she doesn't know how people react. She, and she's just this, pardon me, well-off person. I don't know. I think there definitely is something to say for the fact that she is probably of a different class or caliber and curious about the world, being just the fact that her profession is to read and write and be aware of current events, I would say, would probably be something that very much interests her. Also, probably the fact that she's the minister's wife. I feel like that's kind of part of their duties. So I'm sure that's a factor. It's hard, it's hard to say how much her, her wealth or her status may have affected her ability to be able to pause and pull back from the duties that other people may have had to have participate in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, not everybody had the luxury of being able to write and think through and process the things that were going on around them. A lot of people had to buck down and get things done and, and get the farm hand stuff done, <laughs> get the farm labor done. But like, a lot of people had to just continue on throughout the war and they didn't have the luxury of being able to sit back and read the newspapers and figure out how they felt about things and allow that to, it could have just been even that they weren't allowed to have the luxury of feeling those things. Like mm-hmm. they wouldn't have the time or it might be too distracting or it might overwhelm them and then they wouldn't be able to get their duties done. And you know, things needed to be done for the war efforts. So I could see how there may have been an element of that that was related to her background, potentially. Well, and going off of that sense of feeling separate, it seems like a theme in her life and a theme through at least the beginning of Anne of Green Gables is loneliness, right? Feeling alone or being separate from people. Mm -hmm. And from the books, being an orphan who then finds a family and then Lucy Maud Montgomery, whose father left, her mother died. Yeah. She's living far away from home now. She feels that she's in a situation with people who don't understand her. She's very isolated. And I think that the theme is very prevalent. Definitely. And even her other series, which is made of the three books, the Emily V. Moon series, Emily is also an orphan. So it's a recurring theme. So that's interesting to note. And I think when discussing and reflecting qualities in Lucy Mel Montgomery's own personality, I think there has been a lot of interesting discussion about that. I think some people do assume that Anne was created in the image of Lucy Mel Montgomery's self. It's been commented on that Anne of uh, Green Gables was actually more so a reflection on the disappointment Lucy Mel Montgomery, people think, felt in her own life in terms of the later books in the Anne series and the Emily of New Moon series is more uh, an accurate depiction of Lucy Montgomery's self and the life she wished she had pursued as a life of an author and a teacher and not someone who is maybe more so tied down by um, the life of a housewife. So I find that really interesting because I, I certainly haven't read all eight of her books, but I've read probably about the first five 
And I found it really difficult to get through them because of that very reason of Anne having this very seemingly depressing life and it's not going in a direction that's very exciting to be reading about. You know, she really is just seems like this wife and mother and Gilbert is off doing all the exciting stuff and he has all the action and then it's more about her children and she really fades into the background and it's interesting to see how there are some similarities there between Lucy Maud Montgomery's life and then the life that she gives to Anne Shirley if they really seem to be conflating the identities there. Yeah, I think the last three are about Anne's children, and she's even referenced in them as Mrs. Blythe, so by her married name, no longer by Anne Shirley, which is kind of sad. Yeah, mm-hmm. and don't some of, I think some of her children die in the war efforts. I think so, and she has a child that passes away shortly after being born, which also happened to Lucy Montgomery in real life, so that there are obviously still influences from her personal life that, are, uh, that appear in the Anne series. How much were these books an outlet for her to sort of work through those issues in her own personal life? Thoughts? Maybe a lot, maybe a little? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it certainly seems like there's a lot of comparisons, Mm -hmm. but that's, I think, also been a struggle that she had to work through, right? Of of there being all of these comparisons, even during her life, Mm -hmm. of her being compared to her character and kind of the two being conflated a little bit. How do you have your own identity when your books are so popular and you've written them in a way that they kind of bleed that edge of reality a little bit? Uh, I could see it being really difficult to maintain your identity, maintain your sense of self amidst all of those things kind of swirling around you. And that's the level of celebrity that she was getting even within her life. She didn't pass away until 1942. So there was a long time in there. Some of the movies were made during that time. Certainly, I could see that having an influence on her mental health and just her ability to to cope with different things. I agree with Robin. So on the subject of identity, there's a very interesting article by Faye Hamill, which will be posted in the podcast notes on the website, who actually examines the interesting relationship between the celebrity image of Anne Shirley and how it influenced the perception of Lucy Montgomery, as well as the actresses who played Anne in the early to mid-1900s in different movies that were made. One of the earliest adaptations of Anne of Green Gables was a 1919 silent film. It was in black and white, starring a 17-year-old Mary Miles Minter, who was very famous at the time. Three years after the movie was released, however, the film's director, William Desmond Taylor, was found murdered, and Minter was believed to possibly be involved with the case based on the fact that there were rumors circulating about Minter and Taylor being romantically involved with one another. So, (laughs) shocking. Minter's (laughs) reputation and ability to fill roles as the demure innocent, which is what she had been doing previously, was absolutely ruined because of the scandal. Later in life, Minter wrote articles for magazines, and she would actually sign her name as Anne Shirley. The author then notes how she was obviously seeking to evoke the sweet childlike image on which her screen appeal had been based, but had been taken away from her by evoking Anne. And it gets crazier because the next actress to play Anne, after Minter, took this idea one step further and permanently changed her name to Anne Shirley in an attempt, quote, to appropriate Anne's famous, widely circulated image and associations of charm, freshness, and purity. It's crazy to me. Oh, Hollywood. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing that Anne's had such a huge influence on people and that they've so desperately wanted to cling to the thing she stands for. Yeah. So I think it's obvious that there is so much of that also being put on Lucy Montgomery and assuming what she was like as a person. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And like that idea of like what is acceptable as a woman, like acceptable mm-hmm. femininity. Yeah. So if you're evoking or performing that identity, it's acceptable because it's popular, it's famous, it's can, can you imagine being like Montgomery and you do something like mildly unladylike for the time and then all of a sudden you just hear people go and wouldn't do that? It's also, I think, important to note how Lucy Montgomery has recently become a very important figure in terms of mental health awareness. She's a very internationally well-known literary figure, and it's come to the front that she suffered from mental illness later in life. Also, um, her granddaughter came out with the fact that there was what they believed to be a suicide note found with her when she passed away in the 40s. But there has since been kind of some discussion about if it was actually a suicide note or a piece of paper that she was writing a journal entry on that she was later going to fill into her diary. So there's still a bit of debate, I think, about what the cause of death was. And we'll definitely have a lot of um, literature and different articles that you can read up more about that on our website. So be sure to look at our show notes if that's interesting to you. It's interesting how that's all still developing and we're still learning more about it. Uh, obviously, it's a really difficult topic. It's good that it's being discussed and that we're able to to look into and study more about her life and the impact that all of this fame and that all of her experiences had on the way that she experienced her life. Hmm. So in the spirit of Avonlea, uh, Nick and Keely, have either of you been to PDI? No, I have not. Unfortunately, I have not made it there myself. So I've been to PEI. I went there for one summer, but I spent about three and a half weeks there in total. It was really beautiful, um, and I'm sure that it helped with my my feelings about Anne. Aww, I'm sure it did. It's <laughs> funny, I'm actually, on Facebook, there's a group called We Love Prince Edward Island, and people have posted there a lot, like, I love the Anne Green Gables book since I was a child so we're coming to PEI this summer it's a lot of people's reasons for going there it's uh people draw parallels between the two all the time in a lot of ways they're inseparable and and the island well that that happens all the time part of like how literary landscapes are built more generally literature can make a landscape exist like it can make it significant because of those associations and the memories that people have built by reading those books they are invested with new meaning and new significance you see it in scotland with sir walter scott in the highlands you see it in the lake districts in england this is a canadian version of that well it's like the landscape becomes a character and then it is kind of imbued with that power from that point forward yeah absolutely it's so true and Fun fact related to this is that currently Tourism PEI actually has a three-day suggested Anne of Green Gables itinerary for visitors to experience, quote, the land of Anne. So all the area around Cavendish, which is the north shore of Prince Edward Island, if you're looking at a map, is known kind of colloquially as Anne's land. And that's just, you know, it's where the tourists are in the summer. You know, it's where you avoid if you're a local. (laughs) And uh, yeah, that's where... A bunch of different sites are that I can talk about more that, if you think we have time. That's where people are going to walk in the footsteps of Anne. Yeah. Even if she is a fictional character or, alternatively, Lucy Maud Montgomery. And I mean, even the land in Anne of Green Gables is fictional in its own way. Avonlea is not a real place. It does not exist. You cannot take the road to Avonlea because there is none. True. Unless you're there now, there is a remade village called Avonlea Village that is all fake, that is made after the idea of Avonlea and it's filled with people 
Someone is hired every summer to be in a Green Gables. Someone's hired to be Gilbert. They walk around and do skits, and you can interact with the characters, go to school with them. You can dress up as Anne and get your picture taken. It's very... It's literary tourism, pure and simple, I guess. It's like fascinating. It is. It's like Disneyland (laughs) for Anne fans. Which is fascinating because they've taken Cavendish, which is acknowledged to have been the source landscape for Avonlea, but then created it into its own... Fiction has become fact, right? Like Mm -hmm. This literary landscape has now become an actual landscape and people want to visit it. And it has all of these places associated that have been built up. It has the Green Gables house that we'd already talked about earlier. Everything is there. There's an, it's just amazing that Prince Edward Island has had to, I mean, they probably haven't had to, they've probably been happy to capitalize on this tourism, but they've built so much of their identity around this novel and this series of novels It's just fascinating to me that they're willing to bend and stretch themselves to fit this mold that happened after it was already a province. Yeah, and there's actually a great article written by Edward MacDonald that will be in the notes for the podcast episode where he examines this specifically about Prince Edward Island and Anna Green Gables. Because even while Lucy Montgomery was alive, people were starting to flock to Prince Edward Island because of her book. So she was able to see this happening on her own island There's a quote from a letter Lucy Montgomery wrote in 1928, for example, saying, quote, You ask if Cavendish has become a place of pilgrimage for my admirers. Alas, yes, Cavendish is being overrun and exploited and spoiled by mobs of tourists. Which, that's interesting to think about. Um, This comment also came at a time when Montgomery was lamenting the loss of the, quote, real Cavendish of her youth. She notes in her journal in 1924, how, quote, Cavendish is getting so shabby. Almost all the houses are unpainted and dowdy. Times are hard, of course, but I feel there are other reasons. Indifference, the dying out of the old families, end quote. So despite Montgomery's apparent reluctance to share her island, Montgomery did track the rise of PEI fame as a tourist destination in her clipping scrapbook that we mentioned earlier. So she was keeping track of this happening, which is fascinating. Yeah, that really is just so gripping because it is in the exact same mold as William Wordsworth. He complains endlessly that tourists are coming to the Lake District. He writes voraciously about how there shouldn't be a train. And they do end up putting a railway line in, but he says it'll just bring more tourists and it'll ruin the place. Hmm. Fascinating. It is. And on that again, in 1929, Montgomery was visiting Prince Edward Island and she was greeted with signs that said Avonlea Beach and Green Gables. This was put up by the Prince Edward Island government. And she wrote in her journal again that it seems of no use to protest that this is not Green Gables, that Green Gables was a purely imaginative place. And it's, as we've been saying, interesting because Montgomery's version of the island, when you think about it, was an imaginary place as well. Mm. Like This place people are seeking isn't real, but still people go there every year trying to find it. From my perspective, too, I haven't read the books. I didn't read them as a kid. That place doesn't exist to me. When I hear Cavendish, I think of potatoes. Mm. And when I think of PEI, I think of like Bud the Spud and Stomp and Tom. Like that's, <laughs> it's, it's, a different, it's a different engagement with the place and the landscape, right? It is. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because it's like this theme that runs through her life and this 
kind of situation is a lack of control over identity. When we're talking earlier about how people would compare her to her character and how people are comparing Cavendish to this imaginary place and that feeling of loss of control must have been insufferable. Mm-hmm. Like I'm getting angry for her. I know. <laughs> it's such a, yeah, it's such a juxtaposition. I could see the two forces fighting against each other. It's also interesting to think about the government's position it's this, such an interesting concept that it was the government that chose to do all of these things. But but also, like, I don't know how PEI is doing in the 1930s. Let's say you're a guy whose farm's going down. You're, you're going to want work. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because it was 1937 when the park was officially made. And I guess the government, ironically, as Edward MacDonald notes, the government... Uh, remove the inhabitants from that part of the land to make the park. It's now the nation's smallest park. It is the second most visited national park in Canada, despite its size. Whoa. So, but yeah, thinking about the 1930s and what was going on at that time during the Great Depression, Prince Edward Island wasn't as affected by the Depression in some ways because of the, randomly, the uh, fox farming operations that were happening on Prince Edward Island during that time. But still, it was the Great Depression. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack just in the idea of the park itself. We have talked a lot about these sites in PEI and the historic sites that have been built around that, if you can call them historic heritage sites. But Lucy Montgomery, as we discussed earlier, spent a lot of time in Ontario. And there are actually three major sites in the province now that are dedicated to her. The sort of first we'll talk about is the Leaksdale Manse in Leaksdale, Ontario. This is the home where Montgomery lived after moving to Ontario with her husband in 1911, Ewan McDonald. She lived here for 15 years and wrote 11 of her 20 novels while in the home. Montgomery had two sons there, Chester and Stuart, and one stillborn son, Hugh, during this period of her life. Ewan, Montgomery's husband, was also experiencing some religious melancholia at the time. Leaksdale Manse is a national historic site. And more recently, in 2017, it was actually announced that Montgomery's home in Norville, Ontario, is going to be opened as a museum and literary center in the near future. Montgomery lived in this home from 1926 to 1935, after living in nearby Leaksdale. And of the place, she said, I love Norville as I have never loved any place save Cavendish. And lastly, there's Bala's Museum in Muskoka, Ontario, which celebrates Lucy Maud Montgomery's visit to the house in 1922 while she was on vacation in Muskoka. She ate her lunches at this building, which was at the time a tourist house, while staying close by at the Bala's Roselawn Lodge. Uh, Honorable mentions, of course, have to go to Westfield Heritage Village, where they filmed a lot of the 1985 film with Megan Follows. The sequel also had a scene filmed for the Maplehurst Lodge area, was at Oakland's estate, which is in Toronto, at De La Salle College. It's interesting. Same with Road to Avonlea. Um, Parts of it were shot on location, but parts of it were also shot in Toronto and in Hamilton and other places just to save money. So I know we covered a lot of ground. Um, There's a lot there with Anne. There's so much that we didn't even really have time to to get beyond the surface about. Um, We're going to try to put as much as we can into our notes. If it's something that interests you, please delve deeper into the subject. And um, there's, you know, if you haven't read Anne of Green Gables yet, this is a great time to try to read it. She's in the public domain, so you can find a copy of all eight novels on Project Gutenberg, which is where I got my copy. So thank you so much, Leanne, for being on our podcast with us. Oh, thanks, guys. I've been so excited to do this, and I'm really happy you guys asked me to be a part of it today. Oh, wonderful.
Thank you. Thanks. That's just some of the history that we've noticed about Anne of Green Gables and about Lucy Maud Montgomery and PEI and their way of dealing with heritage tourism. And now you're in the know. Notice History is a no-history podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins, with audio mixing by myself and Anna Coons. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or you can reach out on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.